Occasionally, I've suggested to yogis on retreat that um, you take your day of practice as an experiment. And there's kind of a nice uh, potential to that. You know, that we don't have a fixed idea of how things should be, that we can just see, you know, do this experiment, see what we find. So I say that uh, in a way to preface this talk, because for me, this talk is an experiment. (laughs) I don't know if you know that we um, Dharma teachers can have very different styles in terms of talk preparation. Um, And I have had a particular style and aspired to another style for some years now. (laughs) And my style has been to prepare really thoroughly, sometimes for weeks working on one talk, to write it and rewrite it and edit it and refine it and reconsider words and really put a lot of effort in that way into it. And that's fine if that's your style, and you don't have an aspiration for another style. But I've admired friends and colleagues, teachers over the years, who seem to have a much more fluid kind of creative process with their talks. One of my um, models for this is Michelle McDonald. And she'll bring in you know, 10 pieces of paper to a talk but maybe one piece of paper just has one word written on it and some scribbles or like a circle and some arrows pointing out, you know, and a question mark or, you know, so I sit next to her or I used to when we would teach together and I'd look at her talk (laughs) and she'd give this beautiful talk and it was so inspiring. It felt so creative and so free. So for some years now, I've aspired to something more like that. Um, and I, don't, I do have more words on my page than she did, but um, this is closer, quite a bit closer for me. And one of my uh, most, uh, my largest concerns is that it won't be long enough because I'm not actually naturally a very loquacious person, you know, one that just likes to ramble on. I actually tend more to like to be quiet. Uh, So we'll see. And I have given myself permission, (laughs) so I'm warning you, that this might be a short talk. (laughs) It just might be the way that it is. So we'll see. So my inspiration for this talk uh, was a friend recently next door, someone who's on staff at the retreat center, talking about this story that he heard from the um, Sufi tradition. And I really liked what he said about the story. So I asked him, you know, can you find me that story? I'd like to read it. So I would like to start with reading you this very short story. And it's from Tales of the Dervishes, um, which are teaching stories of the Sufi masters. And just a little bit of background um, to this story. There's uh, a person in it called Isa, Isa ibn Maryam. And that's actually Jesus, 
son of Mary. So this is called The People Who Attain. Imam el-Ghazali relates a tradition relates a tradition from the life of Isa, Ibn Maryam. Isa one day saw some people sitting miserably on a wall by the roadside. He asked, what is your affliction? They said, we have become like this through our fear of hell. He went on his way and saw a number of people grouped disconsolately in various postures by the wayside. He said, what is your affliction? They said, desire for paradise has made us like this. He went on his way until he came to a third group of people. They looked like people who had endured much, but their faces shone with joy. Isa asked them, what has made you like this? They answered, the spirit of truth. We have seen reality, and this has made us oblivious of lesser goals. Isa said, these are the people who attain. On the day of accounting, these are they who will be in the presence of God. So did any parts of that story sound familiar? Any of those kinds of beings, those kinds of people? To me, they were all familiar. I think probably all of us can relate to each one of those types. Sometimes over the course of a retreat or some days or weeks, sometimes in one day we can experience each of those uh, ways of being. I was trying to think of a personal example I could give you about understanding or recognizing in myself those ways of being, and we'll see if this works. This is what came to mind. Um, The year started off uh, pretty intensely for me. When I'm not teaching, I do bookkeeping work. So January is just always a very busy month as a bookkeeper. I work down at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is quite nice. So I'd kind of cleared my uh, schedule of any teaching commitments in January so I could not be too stressed, just do the bookkeeping work. But then right at the beginning of January, my mother fell, and she lives alone, and she's elderly, and she broke her hip. And so I did a lot of navigating her care from Massachusetts, which included going down to New Jersey like once a week uh, during January. And as you know, uh, probably many of you, in caring for your own parents or relatives, it can be quite a lot (laughs) to navigate. And my mother has other... uh, conditions that um, present a lot of challenges. So it was a a challenging and stressful time. So at some point, uh, actually even before January started, my husband and I had this idea that we would take a little vacation 
at some point in January. So we, we said, we're, we're going to need it. We better book it. So we booked a week in Florida, partly for R&R, partly to see my dad, who lives in Florida. And so, you know, even though it was kind of a difficult month and it was cold and it was snowy and, you know, there was a lot of work and kind of a lot of worry about my mother and stress, you know, we were holding out <laughs> for Florida. So there was the, you know, the sort of struggle with what was difficult or hellish. There was the desire for paradise, i.e. Florida. <laughs> and we went to Florida. Um, and first of all, we went when there was a major snowstorm. So of course, our flight was canceled because we were connecting in Washington, DC. That got tons of snow. And we had to reschedule and you know, lots of fiddling around. But we got there. And it was freezing. It was so cold. They're having the coldest winter, they said, since 1956, which is the year I was born, <laughs> which somehow felt significant to go to Florida in their coldest winter since I was born. So it was not warm. And so it wasn't relaxing in that way. Nevertheless, you know, we did our best to accept the conditions and make our peace with reality. <laughs> and we were okay. You know, we weren't thrilled. <laughs> and we had a nice visit with my dad. The interesting thing is, we got back, we were at home for a week or so, and then we discovered that our neighbors up the road, friends, had gone to Florida the week after we did. And so my husband saw them and he said, oh, you know, we heard you were in Florida. And they said, yeah, it was great. It was in the 50s, which it was when we were there. And we thought it was freezing. And they said, yeah, it was great. You know, there was no snow. It was in the 50s. It was fabulous. They were thrilled about it. And we were like, oh, I went to Florida. It was so cold. So it really is so much about what we're hoping for, you know, and what we get and how we relate to it. So just to look at these different parts of that story and see what we can pull out of it or uh, reference from it that relates to our experience here on the meditation cushion in practice. It's interesting to think about the people who gave up or were defeated uh, because of their fear of hell. And even if you don't necessarily relate to that concept of hell, just that state of avoidance or resistance, not wanting, not trusting, that itself can be a form of hell. And it's really, I mean, we could sum that all up in a way as fear that disconnect. Sometimes it's fear of difficult or painful states, sometimes physical states, restlessness in the body or agitation or pain, actual physical pain or illness. You know, how is it to come on a retreat, you know, save our time and our money and make that effort to get here and then not feel well? when we're here, to have the body be a disappointment in that way. It's interesting. Maybe it's some kind of mental pain 
or distress, dis-ease that can arise. How are we with that? How can we relate to it? Or emotional pain. So often in my experience, practice can be times of settling in and calm and relaxation and some spaciousness, just to be followed by the arising of the next wave of something that's difficult or challenging. Maybe the release of emotion that's been held in the body, in the heart. And sometimes in our lives, in relation to discomfort, any of these kinds of discomfort, physical, mental, or emotional, we can find that we're making a great effort in a way. So we don't feel it, you know, an effort to keep it at bay, to ward it off, to not, in a way, succumb to these painful or challenging experiences. And that can be exhausting and overwhelming. I mean, I think I felt some of that in January in just the fears arising about my mother and how things would work out for her. Needing to find a nursing home for rehab for her. And then really recognizing she probably can't continue to live at home alone. And all the stuff that that brings up. And there would be days where I just have to remind myself, okay, just this step. Just right now just this next step. I can't do it all right now. And that's how it is with practice. We get this sense of the future, the unknowable future that we add to painful experience. And then it's unbearable. Because how can we possibly do it? It's not even happening yet. That's fear. I was thinking about the word hell. I wasn't really raised uh, in any religious tradition, so I, you know, I only kind of, it's not something I, that I had a training in, you know, fear of hell. But when I think about it just culturally, you know, the, the understanding of hell for me is some kind of tortured state that never, never ends. And that's, I think, what we do sometimes when difficult states are arising. We add that, that future, feeling like it's never going to end. This is just the way it is forever. When I really can see it clearly, I can see that it's the fear itself of whatever's happening that is the tortured state. That whatever pain is arising, physical, mental, emotional, is actually doable. It's how we're relating to it that's so key. In thinking about those beings at the side of the road in their fear of hell, I also thought that sometimes we're used to that. That's what we're familiar with. You know, if we're used to being fearful and uh, not trusting our experience, that there can be a certain comfort in what's known. 
And so it can trigger more fear, for example, to consider taking a new route or approaching it differently because we know that particular form of suffering. It's like our old friend in a way. And yet it's good to see that it's possible to meet it differently, perhaps to move through it. Just a couple of nights ago, I saw this film. Uh, It was on television. It was on one of the HBO channels. And it was about a woman. And the film goes by the name of the woman that it's about. So it's called Temple Grandin. And for those of you who might not know who she is, she's someone who is autistic. And she really came to terms with um, that particular condition and found the gifts in it, which include a certain kind of sensitivity. uh, And also, she has a very particular way of um, experiencing the world and thinking. She doesn't think in words and concepts. She actually thinks in pictures, in images. So she sees things in her mind. And the film was really well done. So at some point in your future, when you're watching TV again, <laughs> if you have the chance, it's, it's, very, um, it's very well done and very sensitive. The way that she became well known in the world is she um, developed systems for handling um, animals. So um, animals that are used for human consumption, so animals going to slaughter, um, but also uh, pens or holding areas for animals. She could enter into those places and see the, the structures that were there for the animals in the ways that the animals would see them. So she could see how they would be frightened or what would make them comfortable. And she developed these far more humane um, systems for the animals, cows primarily. So she's very well known. And apparently, at least half of the I hate to say the word slaughterhouse in a meditation hall, (laughs) forgive me, but animals are used in our culture for meat. So far more humane um, structures uh, leading these animals to slaughter where they're calm right up until the end, rather than frightened and freaked out and agitated. Um, So what I liked about this movie, one of the things that really struck me As a very sensitive being, she was easily, is easily frightened by things that we are not so um, sensitive to. So when she was young, her mother decided it would be good for her to have more formal education and took her to a boarding school. And she was really nervous and felt she wasn't going to fit in. And she was often teased by kids for being different. And this teacher, amazingly kind, befriended her and saw her potential, her brilliance, really, right away. And he 
encouraged her to consider this new experience as a door. So he used the word door, which she could picture. She could get a picture of a door. And he said, now this is like a door, and you're going to pass through this door into a whole new world. The door of education, the door of experience, into this new world. And so she, it really made an imprint, and she kept that image of a door and used it. In thinking about that, the power of that image of a door and her fear and her hesitancy and then moving through this door and actually offering the gifts that she had to offer in the world in such a uh, kind and compassionate way. I was reminded of another um, Sufi teaching from Rumi, a poem that I first heard on my very first three-month retreat next door in 1985, there was a period in those days when in the afternoon, a staff person would come in and read to us some poetry, something that they were inspired by. So this person came in this day and read just a few Rumi poems, and this was one. And as a yogi, it really touched me, so I want to share it with you. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. So what if we looked for the door when we're afraid? Not the door to escape, to run away, but the door to pass through, to enter in to this new way of being. Toward the end of this movie about Temple Grandin, She's in a room, a gathering of people at a conference about autism, and various people are speaking. She's there with her mom, and at some point someone says something she doesn't agree with, and she kind of jumps up and and addresses it and starts speaking, and people are quite taken with her, and she says, you know, I'm autistic. I know this is how it is for me, and, you know, she's very clear. And people were really... uh, some of them desperate, you know, these were parents who had autistic children and they, they saw this hope in her and they said, well, tell us, how did you get cured? And she said, I didn't get cured. I'll always be autistic. I learned how to be with it, how to work with it. Those weren't her words. She said, I'll always be autistic. But that's true. That's what she did. She learned how to find the gifts in it and offer them in the world. She was working with what she had, accepting what she had. So the people 
at the side of the road because of the fear of hell. They've run out of energy. They don't know what to do. What about those other folks? They're because of desire for paradise. Anybody here for that? (laughs) I know sometimes in my practice I have been. (laughs) It's interesting to look in our practice, in our lives. What's happening when we're wanting something to be better, easier, more beautiful, when we're wanting perfection, whatever that is? The interesting thing about that is that often, not always, but often, it's something other that we're wanting something better, something other than what is. I was thinking also in terms of the word hope. Because in the Tibetan teachings, they talk about hope and fear. Letting go of hope, letting go of fear. Where does that leave us? Here with what is, awake, ready to enter in. And as is true for many uh, spiritual teachings, it's kind of paradoxical, you know, to say, let go of hope, because hope can also be a useful thing in the sense of hope versus despair, for example. You know, that sense of optimism. So that's not really what I mean. I mean more the hope for something better, the desire, the wanting. And so in the Tibetan tradition, hope and fear are said to be two sides of the same coin. And then the opposite is true, that if one lets go of hope, hopelessness, not in terms of despair, but in terms of that letting go of wanting something other. Hopelessness, the flip side of that, rather than fear, can be confidence. That when we're not hoping for something better, leaning into some imaginary future, some paradise, some perfection, something more beautiful, we learn how to be with what is. That gives us confidence. We gain the confidence to meet our experience, all of it. I think it can be useful sometimes to sort of check our effort both in practice and in our lives. I wish I could remember the the experience I was having recently. I'm sorry, but I can't. But I remember noticing very recently this kind of efforting that I was doing in my life. And when I really looked at it, I could see that what it was about was this desire to be good. And I thought, 
I'm 53. <laughs> and there's this desire to be good. <laughs> like, wow, that's amazing <laughs> that that's still there. I mean, I recognize that as a childhood pattern. Maybe you do too. <laughs> so looking at our effort to do, to create in our lives, to become, to do the right thing, to create more pleasurable experience, to become better, legitimate, worthy, respectable, good. Or maybe as practitioners, enlightened. <laughs> what about those efforts to become enlightened? I don't mean to put this question out in a disrespectful way, because I also really honor that motivation, that effort that we bring to our practice, just to make the effort to be here, to dedicate parts of your life, your time, to looking, to waking up. I completely honor and respect that. But what if we shifted our perspective a little bit? If we're holding enlightenment out here as something distant, something so distant, so perfect, so paradise, as to make it unattainable. What if we trusted that our very nature is enlightenment? And that our job here on the cushion and in our lives is to see what obscures that, what covers it over? What blocks it? That natural state of awake being that we are. So we can find sometimes this desire for paradise in our efforts wanting something other. And sometimes, not infrequently perhaps, blissful or beautiful states do arise in practice. Clarity, calm, bliss, perhaps a mind without thought, or very light, very little thought. We like that. It's so easy to assume that that's the paradise that we're seeking, that maybe we've arrived. <laughs> if we can just kind of keep the right posture on the cushion or eat the right amount of food or get in the right amount of walking or keep the right state of, I mean, you know, it's going to change. It's all changing. 
So it's a trap to try to hold on to any particular state in practice. And then there's that other group of people in the story. The ones who see reality, who understand the spirit of truth. And I just feel that I know that's why we're all here, at least to some degree that we have an interest in this. We have an inclination toward it, toward aligning ourselves with the truth. Perhaps even a love of the truth. And really, the truth. Just what, how things are, not how we think they should be could be. Maybe that inclination, that love of the truth is born, has been born in you out of recognizing that those other patterns of hope and fear aren't so productive, really. You know, maybe having a sense of the futility of that path. And so you've found another. I know that felt true for me. It was so liberating to find this tradition where suffering was actually (laughs) acknowledged. And there was an invitation to understand it and get interested and find out how to work with it. This, I think, this alignment with truth, this is how I understand taking refuge in the Dhamma. You know, the Dhamma is both the Buddha's teachings, but also the law, the way things are, the truth. What a wonderful refuge. There's a simplicity in it, which doesn't, as you know, translate (laughs) into ease always. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy to align with the truth because we've developed other habits in the past, the habit of fear, the habit of hope for something else. The good news is you're putting in a lot of hours here (laughs) developing a healthier habit, the habit of aligning with the truth, of being with what is. And I think out of that, trust starts to develop and deepen. Trust in our practice, trust in our experience, all of it, even the boredom, 
the frustration, the sleepiness, the ease, the clarity, the calm, all of it. I like to think of meditation practice in this way as a kind of reality training. There's no piece of our experience that we can't trust. And I know this can sound weird because some intense stuff can arise in practice. (laughs) Can be scary, agitated, anger, rage. The times I've felt the most acute anger has been on retreat. I never thought I was an angry person until once on a retreat I had this rage boil up. And yet, the way that I mean we can trust it is not that we blindly turn ourselves over to it and allow it and get swept away by it, but we can trust all of it as the ground for waking up, the source out of which we develop wisdom and compassion. The part of the story, I think the line that I most appreciate is about those people who are aligned with reality, the people who attained, that they endured much and their faces shone with joy. It's an interesting and seeming juxtaposition endurance and joy. And yet I think it's very much uh, like this. Endurance sounds, you know, not so good. (laughs) We don't want to have to endure. That sounds like hard work, like uncomfortable. But there's something that comes through when we are able to bring that kind of patience and forbearance to challenging states and explore them and learn to navigate them. There's that confidence that comes and a sense of ease, a sense of fearlessness that we don't have to be trying to reside in paradise, that it's okay. It's okay we can be where we are, no matter what arises. So reality training means all of it. That as human beings, we will experience pain. We will experience loss we will experience separation from what we love. We still feel. It doesn't mean that we don't feel, that we're somehow removed, uh, less sensitive. When we're happy, we feel happy. When we're hurt, we feel hurt. We still feel. But what we learn in our meditation practice is not to add 
more to those experiences. So with happiness, we tend to add clinging or (laughs) self-congratulation. And with pain, we tend to add resistance and self-blame or doubt. In a way, that adding, it's like tying knots around the experience. So there's some experience, and then we tie those knots of resistance or clinging on top of the experience. And sometimes in our practice, this is what we see. We see the knots that we've already tied in the past. And I think this is an important part of practice, is recognizing those knots and doing what we can to loosen them. Or another way of thinking about it is as tangles, recognizing the tangles we create around our experience and learning to untangle them. And then to come back to the actual experiences underneath the knots, underneath the tangles. So we stop adding those layers, or we start relaxing those layers, letting them lift off and coming back down to the simplicity of what's happening. Painful experience, pleasant experience, neutral experience. It's a process. It's not something that we do (laughs) in a sitting or a day or overnight. But it's a worthwhile process that you're doing, that we're doing. And we do it with as much patience, kindness, acceptance as we can. We bring interest, investigation. We bring courage at times. And through that process, wisdom develops. We don't magically become some better person. Just like Temple Grandin said, I didn't get cured. I'm still autistic. We're still who we are with our patterns, our history, our tendencies. Some good, some less good, (laughs) or some leading to ease, some more difficult. I like to think of it as, you know, I remember when I started practicing, feeling like I was going to become somebody else, like some better person. And then at a certain point recognizing, oh yeah, I'm still that same person with those same, you know, particular neuroses. It's just that I feel that there's more choice, actually. I'm not as 
ruled by them. Sometimes, not as often, less often. So we learn how to navigate those patterns, those tendencies, our own particular neuroses, with greater ease, greater compassion, more wisdom. So I'd like to close with sharing that Rumi poem one more time. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the dorsal where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.